Now, by way of um, getting us uh, kind of centered on uh, on this program tonight, for, because I know that now I know now that some of you missed the first night. So let me explain real briefly. Uh, I never intended. So when I put all this together, I did not intend. It, it was never my thought really to share this at church. Uh, my goal in this, uh, and still is, somehow to um, accumulate a group of agnostic or atheist uh, people who are curious. You know, they didn't grow up in church. They don't believe the Bible's anything more than just another holy book. Lots of holy books around. This one's nothing more than that. Probably myths and stories. At least that's what I've always heard. And so, uh, you know, I don't put any stock in that, but I, I am curious. You know, something is missing. What, what is that? Well, it occurred to me that if there is a God, then surely the science should point to God because science is, after all, uh, our effort, our human effort, to understand how things have come to be the way they are. That's what science is. How, how did this happen? Why did it happen? How does it, can I repeat it? How did things come to be the way they are? So if we are discovering how things came to be the way they are, they should point back to God. Well, there's a, uh, a, a name uh, already given to that, and it's called intelligent design, ID, intelligent design. And there are actually a number of scientists, many, 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 in fact, that are already um, espousing the idea of intelligent design as opposed to the alternative to that, which is basically Darwinian evolution. They call it naturalism or materialism, and what that means is it just all happened. Well, the ID folks say the science doesn't add up to that. There must have been an intelligent designer. So uh, my uh, approach to this was to uh, prepare a program that I could uh, give, uh, perhaps in a university kind of setting, a Monday night, not a Sunday night, uh, no church involved, and I'm not even going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about the current thinking in science with the idea of that leading people to conclude that, yes, there must have been something. So this is actually a three-part program. Part one we're in right now, where we just review the science with the goal that after seven, eight, ten weeks, whatever it turns out to be, you're sitting there as the judge and jury saying, you're right, materialism doesn't answer the question. There must have been something, someone, something super intelligent that did all this. Okay, great. So you've now come to that conclusion. Let me show you from science why this holy book is the holy book. Yeah, there are other holy books, I agree, but this is the holy book. And because you believe in science, let me show you from science why this is the holy book. Okay, show me. Well, at the end of that, if they say, okay, I'm impressed, that's apparently the holy book, then we get to move to part three, which is, let me show you what this holy book says to you personally. So that's the plan. Okay, now I've taken off my church hat. <clears throat> Here we go. <clears throat> I think. <laughs> we tested it this afternoon. I know it works. It did work. It used to work. 
That works. Okay. So uh, here we are. We're, we're uh, faced with these two, basically these two competing views of how everything came to be. Theism says that there is something or someone that did all of this where the naturalism or materialist view says basically that there is no purpose, there is no meaning, the universe did not know that you were coming, the universe does not care that you are here, and it won't miss you when you're gone. There is no purpose in life. You're born, you reproduce, you pass on your genes, you die. That's it. And there is no moral code, by the way, because there is no one or nothing above us. So really, whatever works for you is okay. That's the materialist view, whereas the theistic view says there is a designer, there is order. He can be known, he or it can be known personally. There is a future life. And at the end of it all, really, both of those views come down to some matter of faith because neither view can be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. Theism then really represents the idea of intelligent design, and intelligent design means engineering. A design means engineering. <clears throat> I, I said many times in the past when I taught other things that whatever your plan is, you have to begin with the end in mind. No engineer sits down with a big blank tablet and just starts scribbling equations or drawing lines and say, I wonder what's going to come out here. No, they have a project in mind. They have an end in mind. And everything that goes into the planning and uh, preparation for that is leading toward that end. Now, as a theist, and I've admitted that I'm a theist, you're the judge. You'll decide for yourself uh, when it's done. But as a theist, I'm going to suggest to you that the Creator was a super engineer, and the end He had in mind was you. On this planet, at this time, and everything that has been made was made with you in mind. A super engineer who had an end in mind. We need to keep in mind all the time that science is a human endeavor. And as such, because it's a human endeavor, we as scientists, you may be scientists, we're, we're wrong sometimes. And one of the biggest mistakes, not just a small mistake, but a 180-degree mistake was not cleared up until just 60 or 70 years ago. Prior to that... Every scientist would have said, yes, the universe is eternal. It has always been, and it's unchanging. Only 60 years ago did science finally say, we weren't just a little wrong. We were completely wrong on that. And there was a beginning, which was really the point of last week's uh, program. And by the way, that point, there being a beginning will become very important further down the road. So there was a beginning, and science was proven to be 180 degrees incorrect. So we just need to realize all the time that science is a human endeavor, and so we always keep in the back of our mind 
that whatever we think today could be modified or might be changed as we get smarter and smarter. Nevertheless, uh, this is the science that we have today, and that's what we'll look at. have always been theories. Uh, how do you then go about proving a theory not to be a theory? And is that what we've actually done here? Has it been proven? Well, you know, science in some sense never proves anything. Uh, it's all about gathering evidence, reaching conclusions, because the overwhelming amount of evidence goes for one model rather than some other model. Listen to this scientist. Scientists never really prove anything. They gather evidence they analyze the evidence, and that leads them to a conclusion, which is exactly what I want you to do. I want us to analyze the evidence, gather the evidence, consider the evidence, and see what conclusion that leads you to. In the legal world realm, we call that the preponderance of the evidence. But in the scientific realm, they have the same concept. They just call it inference to the best explanation. As we analyze the science, you'll be asking yourself, what is the best explanation for why we're here and how it came to be the way that it is? So we're going to be looking at evidence from cosmology. We did that last week. We're going to look tonight to some evidence from physics. Uh, next week, we'll follow up with some more from physics, followed by paleontology, chemistry, biology, and ultimately the language of the universe. I mentioned these two points. I won't dwell on those further. So again, science is a human endeavor. We talked about cosmology. There was a beginning. You know, you have to ask yourself the question, how is it that we have something from nothing? Now, science is convinced, as we saw last week with Brad, that there was a point where there was absolutely nothing, followed by a whole lot of something. In fact, <clears throat> Dr. Michio Kaku, uh, who's a PhD in uh, theoretical physics, has described that opening second, actually the opening billionth of a second, as having been an explosion of energy so dense and so intense that it was like a liquid like water. And that too will become an important point further down the road. Cork soup, actually, is what he calls it. So we have the question then, how does something come from nothing? Now, on the science side of that question, well, obviously there is no real good answer but there are several answers. So one of those answers is that we are in an expanding and contracting universe, kind of like a balloon that blows up and then the air comes down and then it blows back up and the air comes down. And so we just happen to be in one of the expansion phases. That's the expansion contraction argument. The other argument is that, well, there, maybe there's many universes in spite of how big ours is, space is enormous, and so maybe there's lots of other universes, and we just happen to be in the right one. We just happen to be in the one that allows life, and therefore we're able to see this and even ask the questions. Here's the key point about that. If you're a scientist, your science is based 
on the idea of testing, measuring, and verifying. Now, the scientists have a statement for that. They call it a falsifiable hypothesis, meaning we offer an explanation and then we're able to test that and prove it wrong. And if we test and test and test and test and we can't prove it wrong, well, then it becomes a theory. So a hypothesis is first, this might be what it was. We test it, test it, test it. It it always works. It becomes a theory of how things actually work. Here's the point. It's amazing that scientists can actually, with a straight face, offer the multiverse or the expanding, contracting uh, idea because there's no way to test that. I could just as easily say a giant turtle laid a real big egg which hardened and became the earth. Well, you can't test that either. In other words, if you're an atheist and your worldview is anything but God, your explanations get kind of bizarre after a while. But that is what the current science says, at least some of the scientists say, that uh, these are the possibilities. Well, here we go for tonight. We're going to talk about the Goldilocks enigma. And if you um, are a student or going to be a student uh, in a college physics class and you happen to be uh, taught by an atheist uh, professor, you could raise that question. Sir, ma'am, talk to me about the Goldilocks enigma. They know exactly what that is. And what is the Goldilocks enigma? The fine-tuning of the universe for life. Ours, down to atoms and subatomic particles. The very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and light couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. 
In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. <laughs>
So what is the key point here? We're talking about the universe. We're not talking about the earth. We're talking about the entire cosmos. As Brad explained, I believe he explained uh, last week, no physicist will deny this point. In the first billionth of a second, all the laws that govern the universe were in place. All the laws. Now, they referred to several uh, here, but not all of them. There are many, many more. Brad, maybe you'll tell us in a minute. Uh, there are many, many more that are referred to as constants. 30 or so, is that a fair number? Yes. Fair number, 30. I put him on the spot. He didn't know I was going to ask him. 30 of these numbers, which physicists use in all of the mathematical computations that they do all day long to try to understand how things work and why they work and how they are the way they are, not just on earth but throughout the universe. All of these constants were in place in the first billionth of a second. And I think Brad used the illustration of Lego blocks. You know, once you kind of start building, you're sort of locked in to what you're doing there. Well, the universe was locked in in that first one billionth of a second. And everything that has happened since then was designed, pre-programmed to occur as it has, when it has. Now, let's listen to uh, a couple of... Uh, well-known, not maybe to you and me, but in the scientific community, let's listen to a couple of uh, physicists uh, talk about this problem or this issue of design. We're going to hear from uh, Leonard Susskind, uh, who is a Ph.D. in physics from Cornell, and David Deutsch, a Ph.D. in physics from Oxford. Leonard, what is it about the fine-tuning of this universe that causes such energy, such controversy among scientists, philosophers, theologians, everyone today is talking about fine-tuning. Why? Well, it seems, and we don't completely understand why, that the laws of physics, laws of cosmology, laws of how the universe evolved, seem to be very special. Of course they're special. Everybody would expect them to be special, but they're special in a way that's unexpected. They seem to be special in the way that is just very, very conducive to our own existence. The laws of physics could have been very different. Um, you could imagine a world that didn't have electrons in it. There's nothing wrong with that in the basic uh, theory of uh, mathematical theory of physics. You could just throw away the electron. What would happen if you threw away the electron? No chemistry. No atoms, no chemistry, no biology, no people to ask the question. We just wouldn't be here to ask the question. You could change the rules in other ways. You could make gravity strong. Why is gravity so much weaker than the other forces? Well, we don't really know, but here's what we do know. If it were just even a little bit stronger, stars would burn out too quickly. They wouldn't live long enough for life to evolve. Instead of stars, instead of galaxies, we'd have black holes. We can't live in a black hole. I mean, you know, science fiction, maybe you can live in a black hole, but we can't really. Uh, most likely, the universe would expand and contract too rapidly. And so everything seems to be almost on a knife edge, that if you were to change the rules of physics, the laws of physics, even a little bit, 
the world as we know it wouldn't exist. The laws of physics seem incredible in that they are perceptible to us, we can manipulate them, we can use them for predictions. Uh, what does that begin to tell us in terms of their fundamental nature and, and, and how can we begin to look at the laws of physics and see what the nature of reality is? It's certainly the case, and I think this is now uncontroversial, that if the laws of physics were very slightly different in, in almost any way, um, there could be no life in the universe, no complex chemistry, uh, and no thinking people, and therefore no one who knows the laws of nature. So they are somehow almost infinitely special in that they allow themselves to be, as you said, not just known but also used and uh, that they were used before humans even existed to uh, create life and then to, for the human species to evolve. Now um, that has been for several decades a, um, an unsolved problem at the foundations of physics, why that is so, um, called the fine-tuning problem. And uh, it began in, uh, in, in a serious way. Uh, people began to investigate this in the 1970s. Uh, the physicist Brandon Carter, who was investigating the evolution of stars, found that if the charge on the electron had been only a few percent different, either larger or smaller, then there would be no complex chemistry and no opportunity for life to evolve. I guess that was it. So I'm not going to play a clip, but uh, this gentleman was uh, uh, featured with a quote in uh, the earlier video, Sir, Lord, <laughs> Lord, I guess he's called, Martin Rees, PhD in astrophysics from Cambridge, has uh, written a book. He's an atheist, by the way, but he has written a book uh, called uh, Six Numbers, and uh, he explains how this knife-edge concept applies to these six numbers and were any of those numbers even slightly different, life could not exist anywhere in the universe or on this earth. So here is the point uh, of, of this presentation. We have a, a few more things to look at. What was the thing that was repeated over and over? Everything is balanced on a knife edge to allow life to exist. A knife edge. An engineer would think in those terms. An engineer would plan for the smallest possible measurements to ensure the perfect outcome. And we happen to be living in the perfect outcome. And you have to ask yourself the question, how possible or probable is it that all of this just happened and just happened to be perfect. Not close to perfect, but absolutely perfect for life. Fine-tuned for life means designed for life. can't believe that this all happened by chance, which implies it was a creator. You see, I'm, I'm in a completely uh, hopeless uh, uh, bind, 
and I've stayed there. Again, I find it hard to believe that this is all a matter of atoms and molecules. And so I try to fit into my concept of the world uh, the uh, conclusion that there is a larger force of some kind, which we can call God or you can call it whatever. And I find I, but I can't accept that. I'm uh, what's called a materialist in philosophy. I believe in, that doesn't mean I like Cadillacs and big cars. My students always used to think that. It means that I believe the world consists entirely of material substances. And when you specify those substances, the atoms and molecules, and the laws by which they interact, you've done it all. There isn't anything more to, to be said or inserted into your model of the universe. And that's what my science tells me, and I'm, you know, I've been a scientist all my life. Uh, but I find it unsatisfactory. In fact, it makes me uneasy. I feel I'm missing something, but it will not, uh, I will not find out what I'm missing uh, within my lifetime. If you uh, reverse the motion, the outward motions of the galaxies, and go backward in time, they come closer and closer together, and you reach a point finally where they're nearly infinite in density and temperature, and, and farther than that you can't go, so there's a beginning, there's a, a point in time from which it all started. And that's a remarkable thing because it has a very strong theological flavor to it. And that intrigued me because I am a, uh, an agnostic. And if there was a beginning, a moment of creation in the universe, then there was a creator. And a creator is not, a, not compatible with agnosticism. And I thought that, I found that message so interesting that I, I felt a strong compulsion to share it with others. And so that's why I wrote that book. Robert Jastrow worked for NASA and uh, gave us this quote. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Well, uh, Robert Jastrow um, does now know the answer. He crossed over a few years ago, and so he has learned by now uh, what the answer is. As a theist, I'm convinced that he has uh, met the Creator and uh, has had all of this explained to him at this point. So uh, what do we take away from uh, the... Uh, view this evening. From the standpoint of physics, we know that all the laws that have governed the universe, that have caused us to be here today, are balanced on a knife edge to be fit for life. Did you pick up on the numbers? 10 to the 60th on the gravitational force. And there have only been 10 to the 20th 
seconds since creation. So the most minute that you can imagine change in the gravitational force would have eliminated the possibility of life. 10 to the 60th changed to 10 to the 59th or 10 to the 61st, and you and I would not be here. We are here because all of the laws that govern the universe are, ba- are balanced for life. So recall what I mentioned to you uh, in the opening. Design is really not complicated. You see design. You know design when you see it. No one would look at this photo and say, well, that just happened. The ocean just washed up and made that in the sand. No, no, we would never believe that. We can look at that and know that someone had an idea of what they wanted to do and how they wanted to communicate, and someone engineered this. And so as we look at the universe, we now know beyond a doubt there was a beginning. We now hear from at least some who study this all the time that that initial burst of energy was so dense and so intense it was like plasma, like water, like cork soup. And we know that all of the laws that have governed the formation of everything that we see were present in that first one billionth of a second and that things have played out according to those laws. And those laws have brought us to today where we have life on this planet perfectly balanced on a knife edge to allow us to exist. Thank you for being here, and next week we will uh, carry on a bit further with physics.